0: There we go. <laughs> now I'm on. Now we're good. Um, keep the Bible open in front of you. We're going to—it's a long reading. We're going to keep dipping back into it as we figure out where we're going. Um, as a favourite author of mine uh, once wrote, "Yeah, good. The gospel is bad news before it is good news." And he goes on to say, "The preaching of the gospel." Is a speaking of the truth about the way things are, and it is first of all the news that man is a sinner, that he is evil in the imagination of his own heart. And that, my friends, is a basic summary of Romans chapter 2, right there. You might recall from last week that the Apostle Paul begins his letter to the Romans with a really grim assessment of the condition of the human race. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And as he brings that chapter to a close, he has this big inventory of the wickedness of humans evil, greed, and depravity, envy, murder, and the list goes on and on. But you don't actually need the Bible to make that assessment of humanity you really only need to look at the news. And in fact, you have to be living in some really weird alternate reality, disconnected from what's going on on this planet, um, if if you think uh, that there is no evil going on in the world, no human evil at work. So what the Bible offers us then in Romans 1 and 2 is the reason why humanity is in this state. The basic problem that makes the human condition what it is. Now, you might have noticed last week as we did Romans chapter 1 that Paul uses third person personal pronouns. I'm sure you were thinking that to yourself. He was saying, he was talking about sin in terms of they, them. It's possible uh, for for someone to read his observation of the human condition and and shake their head at those people. Who are responsible for evil in the world? And we might even think that Paul was going a little, a little, a step too far; that he might have forgotten all the good people in the world, or all the decent people in the world. But in fact, it doesn't work that way, and you and I know it. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh was known, uh, sorry, wrote these words once. If only it were all so simple. If there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it was necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? Now, for those of you who don't know who he is, it's important to know that Alexander Solzhenitsyn was writing from his experience as a Russian political prisoner during the, the, the reign of Stalin. Um, and he experienced firsthand the, the Gulag prison system, that, that, that uh, set of Arctic prison camps that was in the news this week where another uh, Russian political prisoner died, Alexei Navalny solzhenitsyn was wise enough in his own experience to realize that the the evil on display in the gulags was also visible in his fellow prisoners and visible in himself none of us is free from the basic problem of the human condition and so as we turn the chapter into romans 2 paul goes on to address the person the theoretical person who may have been congratulating themselves on being better than those wicked people described in chapter 1. And he goes on to say, You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. And the conclusion he's going to work us towards over in chapter 3 is expressed in a collection of biblical texts he gets from the Old Testament. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So this isn't just Paul's overly pessimistic take on the human race. This is the entire Bible's view On the human race and therefore Romans 1 to 2 comes to us as bad news before it can be good news verse 5 you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed verse 9 there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil and crucially verse 16 this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets Through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Paul's gospel, Christ Jesus, Son of David, resurrected Son of God, accurately, Paul's gospel accurately represents Jesus' own gospel proclamation. What did Jesus say when he arrived? The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Repent and believe. Our encounter with Jesus requires. Repentance, we cannot come to him without being exposed to the truth about the way things are, as my favourite author puts it. And that means we come under his scrutiny. We are exposed to the truth of his person and therefore we are under his judgement about us. And we'll find in the Gospels, as Jesus goes about his ministry, that come and follow me is not that far removed from go And sin no more the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus is bad news for us before it is good news so what is the problem confronting the human race according to Romans 1 and 2 well in the first instance the problem is not God's judgment the problem is not God's judgment God's judgment is is not a dilemma that needs to be solved. And judgment isn't the problem that the gospel addresses. Because, as it turns out, the day of wrath, the coming judgment of God, is part of the good news of the gospel. Luke 4 introduces the ministry of Jesus this way. Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he says, "...the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor." He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. In other words, justice is coming. Evil in this world is not going to be allowed to continue. There will be an accounting for evil. There will be a restoration and a making all things whole once again. So we can't sit here in the world and demand justice, but then complain about God coming as a judge. Because if someone complains about God's judgment, what they're really saying is, I don't think God should be allowed to judge. Our progressive liberal culture, and that includes our progressive liberal Christian culture, wants justice, but it wants us on the basis of a standard of values based in human reason. So democracy, the majority vote is held out as the way we should determine the boundaries of what is good and evil in the world according to apparently infallible human reason. And God may have a say, of course, he gets a vote, but he better respect the majority opinion. Be terribly intolerant and narrow-minded of him to insist on, on it otherwise. Well, the only other way to look at it is, well, maybe God just doesn't really care. He'll just leave it up to us to decide between good and evil, between what is just and what isn't. I personally think that would be a little bit like asking real estate agents to take charge of the housing crisis. That just isn't going to end well. And, of course, the assumption here in our culture is that people are essentially good as they are. God doesn't need to be involved. Uh, God is, in fact, irrelevant to all of this. But what's, what's strange about our culture is the values that, that are held on tightly and espoused in a progressive liberal view are things like love and tolerance and mercy. And it turns out they're not human universal values. They haven't been around with us for all time. They're not true of every culture. It just simply isn't the case. In fact, what they hold out as progressive uh, human values turn out to be Christian values, turn out in actual fact to be God's judgment values smuggled in through the back door and rebranded. So the Bible insists God's justice is about the fact that he does care. He is involved. So Romans 1 and 2 is insisting that God's judgment is righteous judgment. It's correct judgment. It is, as verse 2 says, judgment based on truth. Not popular opinion, not human reason. God alone is in the position to decide. And any God whose judgments are merely echoes of human judgments really can't be much of a God. As Tim Keller was fond of saying sometimes, um, a God who isn't allowed to contradict you can't really be a God. And the essential sin of Adam and Eve was to reach out and take the forbidden fruit from that tree on the understanding that they would be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, humans were reaching out to become the umpire's of right and wrong in the world God would not need to be consulted and the reason they could be tempted in this direction in the first place was based in doubts about God's goodness the serpent convinces the man and the woman that God is false-hearted he doesn't really intend to bless them in fact he's withholding good things from you so the reason humans won't have God as judge is because we have already passed judgment on him. God's judgment is not the problem here. That brings us to a second thought, that the basic problem facing humanity in Romans 2 is not God's wrath. The day of God's wrath, the wrath of God being revealed against the godlessness and unrighteousness of humans is also not the problem That the gospel seeks to solve for us God does not have an anger management problem that needs addressing humans have anger management problems even the most placid of them like me I used to think I was the most perfectly calm rational thoroughly kind and patient person and then I got married and we had three sons and there's nothing like marriage or parenthood to expose the deep truths about the self. So when Janala and I were sharing the job of parenting from home, I can recall my day on while she at work, driving somewhere in the car with my own three small boys in the back seat and just having to pull over to the side of the road, get out of the car, close the door, walk away a few paces and breathe. Yeah, the parents are laughing. The young people are going, what is he talking about? God's anger, however much the Bible might talk about God using human terms, God's hand, God's eye, God's God's feet, God's anger, God's wrath is nothing like human anger. God's wrath is in fact a part of his righteousness. So at the open of his gospel in chapter 1, when Paul pairs the righteousness of God that is being revealed in verse 17, With the wrath of God that is being revealed in verse 18, he is not pitting these two things against each other. He is giving us the full picture of God's righteousness. Because here's the thing, God's righteousness is not simply a standard of right or wrong, not simply a law. God's righteousness is his very own character. He is righteous because the way he deals with the world is in a way that is entirely good all the time. He makes the world and proclaims it not only good, but very good. Everything as it ought to be. Everything ordered, everything life-giving, everything geared towards blessing humanity. In other words, everything right and perfect under his rule. This is why God's in the position to call out what is right from what is wrong what's in order and out of order what is in fact life sustaining and life destroying what is in fact consistent with blessing and what is intrinsically cursed god's right to judge is based on his righteousness and god's wrath is the correct expression of his person against all that is not right god's wrath is his subtle uh, his settled just reasonable opposition to wrong. Because we're not talking about a pagan Greek god here. Some capricious, unpredictable character given to tantrums, doing contradictory things without needing to explain themselves, both unfair towards humans and uncaring. That's a projection of human anger, but that is not God's wrath. God's wrath is an intrinsic part of Of his holiness in the Old Testament the way God's wrath is frequently expressed is in the phrase the burning of his anger the burning of his anger but at the same time God's presentation of himself as a saviour as holy and righteous is also frequently depicted as fire he appears to Moses in a fire on the bush announcing compassion I've heard Israel. I'm going to act and save them. He appears and speaks to Israel from Mount Sinai, from the midst of fire. That's how he is remembered. The God who spoke to you from fire. He is the original fire on the mountain. And Psalm 97 celebrates God's goodness and glory this way The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Cloud and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory." Fire is a striking way to talk about God's person because fire is essentially a good thing. We use it to cook our food, we use it to heat our homes, we use it to dry out our wet shoes. If the human race never mastered the gift of fire, we would still be wearing animal skins, shivering in caves while we eat raw fish and steak tartare. Fire is central to the human development of technology. Up to a certain point, even even a bushfire is a good thing. You know, many Australian trees and flowers require fire for their seeds to germinate and a seedling to come. Some of them only flower after a fire. So a fire, in its right sense, uh, can actually renew the bush and restore its health. It can actually be a good thing for living trees. But as anyone in this room who's ever lit a fire knows, fire is also a dangerous thing. Even a small fire can be very dangerous. There's there's a fine line, for sure, between what is a a helpful, regenerative bushfire and a highly destructive inferno that consumes everything in its path. And, And if you've ever lived through a bushfire, anyone ever lived through a bushfire? Okay, maybe just me, all right. Well, there aren't words to describe the ferocity, the otherworldliness. Fire is necessary, fire is good, but fire is dangerous if i can switch metaphors for a moment as lucy pevensey discovers in the lion the witch and the wardrobe aslan is not a tame lion hebrews 12 therefore since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken let us be thankful and so worship god acceptably with reverence and awe for our god is a consuming fire There cannot be the righteousness of God. There cannot be the justice of God without there being also the wrath of God. It's an indispensable part and a wholly correct part of his holiness. So the problem of the human condition then lies somewhere else and it lies wholly in Romans 2 and Romans 1 in the problem of the human heart. Look at verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart you are storing up wrath for yourselves. Or a more accurate, accurate translation is because of your stubborn and unrepentant hearts. Now we're used to thinking of the heart as the centre of human emotions. But for ancient people, the heart was really the seat of human reasoning. It was the centre of, of decision as well as the centre of desire. All, all those things that we now associate with brain function. And in fact... Um, Everything had slipped for the Greeks. They experienced emotions in the gut. That's irrelevant. But the problem here, the problem here in Romans 1 and 2 is not an ignorant heart. It's not a lack of information and education. Because as chapter 2 goes on, Paul will point out that the Jewish people had God's law to explicitly teach them right from wrong. Not only that, he says, Gentiles, Gentiles who didn't have the, the law, still had consciences that dictated right from wrong. Verse 15, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. The consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, even defending them. That's what we heard in chapter 1. Human beings are without excuse before God because God has made himself known. There's information about him in the very structure of the creator of the world creation of the world the human problem is suppression of that truth rejection of that truth that turns people into futile thinkers people whose thinking is darkened, people who lack understanding when Adam and Eve took the fruit uh, and rejected God's truth they didn't become more wise they become they became more foolish Human reason is useful, up to a point. Human reason and intellect can discern truth up to a point. Science deals in truth. But human reason is blind to go beyond that. The the empirical sciences, and I'm speaking now as an empirical scientist, can't penetrate beyond the superficial questions to the ultimate questions, why? Why is it like this? For what purpose? It's worth noting now that, at the first, that the first time Paul ever uses the word sin in the book of Romans in, in connection with human behaviour is here in chapter 2, verse 12. All through chapter 1, he's given this extensive list of wicked human behaviour but didn't at that point use the word sin as a way of summarising it but now he does use the word sin and he uses it in connection with the law be it the law of Moses or the law of the human conscience. He says all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. What we find is that the true character of what the Bible calls sin is to be found in the decision of our hearts to refuse to hear what God has said and take it on board. God has spoken God has revealed we're not ignorant we are defiant so the human behavior problem all this wickedness expressed in that great long list stems from a human heart problem we have heart disease of the very worst kind and God's judgment is his truth expressed against our lies. God's wrath is his settled opposition to what is, is false in us. Our sin is what renders us liable to God's wrath in the same way that being a dead, dry branch renders you liable to be consumed by fire. A fire will do good things for a living tree, but a dead tree will be consumed entirely. And our chief sin is our refusal to accept what he says about himself and trust it and so the kingdom has God has come near repent and believe the good news repentance is not primarily a change in outward behavior it's fundamentally a change in our hearts the very word for repentance in Greek is metanoia which means a change in mind and remember for Greeks the mind happened here in the heart and so a change of mind in the Bible means Believe, and once again, believe is not just simply the rational intellectual exercise that we think of it, a brain activity. Believe comes from the heart because it's about trust. It is personal. It's hearing and responding to what God has to say in Jesus when he says, come and follow me. It is about experiencing that love and responding to it. So change in outward behaviour simply isn't enough. That won't do it. And as any of you who struggles with any kind of recurring or besetting sin knows, it just doesn't work to try and change your behaviour. That problem Paul is going to label the flesh, and he'll get into that in coming chapters. What we need to know right now is we need supernaturally changed hearts. That lies at the centre of the gospel. The gospel is power to bring salvation because it brings what God must do for us, what we have no power to do for ourselves. We need heart surgery, so to speak. And that's the image that Paul concludes with at the end of chapter 2. Probably most of us had phased out by then. But these are remarkable words. Let me read them again. Verse 28. A person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward, merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Now, we need to stop and back up here. Circumcision of the heart, what the heck is that? Paul's talking as though he's having a conversation with an imaginary Jewish listener. Someone raised with God's law, possessing God's law, knows what God says is attempting to live that faithfully, has their assurance resting upon that fact. And that would mean, of course, that their parents had physically circumcised them as a baby, if they were a boy. Circumcising male penises at birth was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants. And the essence of the covenant expressed there was, I will be your God and you will be my people. So by circumcising male babies, the Israelite nation, whether male or female, was demonstrating their belonging to him and their faithfulness in response to what he said. But way back, right in the beginning of his dealing with the Israelites, God identifies a change of heart, a heart problem with his people. Deuteronomy 10, he says to them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and observe the commands and decrees I'm giving you today. And then goes on to say, circumcise your hearts, therefore. Do not be stiff-necked, stubborn, any longer. But as Moses goes through his big long sermon in Deuteronomy, he comes to a point at which he, he predicts Israel's future moral failure, the fact that they simply won't do this they simply won't love god they simply won't keep his law and then moses promises this unique solution the lord your god will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live that's what paul's talking about in romans 2. to change our behavior to live well to live rightly to live righteously not not to have evil behaviour, is to live in accordance with God's own truth, and to do that, well, we simply can't. We need hearts that are transformed. Changing everything else doesn't do it. God himself must powerfully change our hearts. A circumcision done by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, in fact, who raised Jesus from the dead. That's how we met him in verse 1 of chapter 1. He must go to work and do surgery in our hearts. Here's where the gospel is really good news. The gift of the Holy Spirit to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Now Paul has only briefly touched on this and he will move on. And we will come back to that subject. And most importantly, we'll come back to it at the climax of all of this in Romans 8 where we'll discover the Holy Spirit is the front and centre subject. The gift of the Spirit through the cross of Jesus is where all of this is going. Well, we've heard the bad news of the gospel in chapters 1 and 2, sin, judgment, wrath. Now you must hear the good news of the gospel, power for salvation, power to transform your heart. The cross of Jesus is not some merely intellectual concept to grapple with. It is the power of God to change us. This is the Spirit who works powerfully to raise Jesus from the dead, poured out into our hearts, who will also raise you and I from the dead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we can probably do no better than pray, come Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have gifted him to us. We have assurance that He is in our hearts, that he dwells amongst his people. He is your very presence amongst us. But we pray, come Holy Spirit, would you have your way in our lives? Would you transform us from the inside out? Would you bring, not simply a change of mind, a change of beliefs and intellectual reasoning, would you bring changed behaviour? Would you shape in us each personally an encounter with Jesus that radically changes us? All at once, if, if it were possible. But would you have mercy and not give up on doing that day by day, year by year? And would you shape in this congregation and indeed in the church in Perth, in the church in this country and the church throughout the world, such a people that evidence the reality of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.